0: Hello again, ours Technica listeners. This is the second installment of a three-part interview with tech publisher and thought leader Tim O'Reilly, discussing his fascinating career, as well as the rich tapestry of original thinking that fills his recent book, WTF. If you haven't yet heard part one, there's a link on the page where this player is embedded, and I strongly suggest that you go back and listen to it before this one. And with that, back to my conversation with Tim O'Reilly to set context. At this point in the conversation, we've started talking about how incredibly early after the initial emergence of the World Wide Web, Tim decided to bet his company on it. Unbelievably early, like ninety. yeah, we, we
1: actually published a
0: book in uh, '92 called the Whole
1: Internet Users Guide and Catalog.
0: And how many websites were there in 1992? Uh, about 200.
1: Uh, when we <laughs> it was when a we, short we, book, right? Well, no, the book was actually oh, the uh, internet. It was, yeah. it was really about the internet more broadly. News, it was like how to groups, use F, and, yeah. And yeah. New groups, FTP. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, telnet, you know, all the tools, and and literally we sandwiched in the web at the last minute. Uh, it wasn't even the author of the book who wrote it. It was one of our editors. Um, but still radically early. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dale Doherty. It is a long history of why we were doing that. We were trying to figure out, figure out ebooks books Dale Doherty uh, was my troublemaker in chief. He had been looking at ebooks since he did a hypercard version of, of our book, Unix, in a nutshell, in 1987. And he discovered the World Wide Web through a, a toolkit called Viola. Long story. But we ended up creating the first commercial website. Uh, And that came again in this combinatorial innovation out of a couple of streams. Uh, Dale wanted to create an online magazine about the people who were making the World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. uh, But we also had a catalog in the back of this book, The Whole Internet User's Guide and Catalog, which, by the way, went on to sell a million copies and was Mm -hmm. selected by the New York Public Library as one of the one of the books of the century, as they, wow. as they said, uh, because it really introduced the, the Internet and the Web to the world.
0: Yeah. With a million readers back then, it introduced it to a lot of people.
1: And that's what we did. So we really went out there. You know, and I became the prophet of the Internet and the World Wide Web is coming. Anyway, so one of the things that we did in the, t- for this evangelization was that we realized people couldn't try the Internet. really; right. It was hard. And so we came up with this idea to do a kiosk uh, in uh, bookstores. And we actually created one, uh, in, in the store in San Jose called computer literacy book, bookshop. And the kiosk was a point and click version of the catalog in the back of the whole internet user's guide and catalog, click on this link and it will take you to, instead of typing in telnet.quake.mit.edu could just click on the link and bang, you get information about the latest earthquakes. Yeah. So we were, you think of us as a as Yahoo before it was Yahoo.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: And so we, we created it in 90, early 93, was the first advertising supported site. I, I thought, well, that would be the natural model. You know, we invented not internet advertising a la, you know, uh, what Hotwire did with the banner ad. We invented basically the idea of the commercial website as an ad for a company's right, products. Right. And, and of course, in the very beginning, the very first ads, the Word Oak people didn't have websites. So we created this yeah, catalog yeah, at yeah. GNN and they got a page in it.
0: And GNN was Global Network Navigator.
1: Yeah, Global Network Navigator. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So we sold it to AOL in nineteen uh, in in 1995.
0: So right around when Yahoo was just getting started, you sold it.
1: Actually, we almost bought Yahoo at one point.
0: Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web at the time. That's right.
1: Yeah. And, uh, but they decided to take venture capital instead. I didn't want to take venture capital. And the reason I didn't want to take venture capital was that I had, in my consulting days, I'd been around so many startups and had watched them go from being really interesting places mm-hmm. that i liked to being really boring companies just like everybody else and i went man i don't want to A do that taking venture capital That's right. that, that that sort of it took changed there and, and i want i i want to keep doing interesting work yeah. you know my original business model was interesting work for interesting people
0: and you convened what was for all intents and purposes the first worldwide web summit right
1: it was in our offices and it was uh it was really just Dale brought together a bunch of the early pioneers of the web to kind of start thinking together about how that the web could really be this big thing. The yeah. whole Mosaic team is yeah, there. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Mark
0: Andreessen and his merry band. That's from right. And Tim Bursley
1: and, and uh, you know, people like Rob McCool, who invented the idea of the dynamic website with CGI. Right. So we had kind of done that activism about the web. My next big wave of activism was in the uh, in 1998. Uh, A few years later, when I realized that many of my best-selling books were about free software. Mm. It was this long tradition of academic information sharing. Right. And and that was what I really responded to. And and I saw that there was this, uh, and this is really a a story I retell in the book because it's a great illustration of uh, when you have the wrong map. Yeah. You actually don't see reality yeah. clearly enough because what was happening was that all of the people who were talking about free software uh, were focused on this political narrative of toppling Microsoft. Yeah. You know, I was saying, why aren't you talking about the internet? You know, here's the internet. It's this huge work of free software. That- Tim Berners-Lee put the web into the public domain. Uh, you know, the, uh, the the fundamental protocols of the internet were originally you know developed under government contract, but the the uh, all the TCP/IP stuff uh, was even the, even in Microsoft stack came out of UC Berkeley, and uh, the, all the utilities. And it was also this continuation of this USENET uh, and UCPnet culture that I had been part of and had documented in some of my early books. Mm-hmm. So. I just said, this is really, you know, we're, we got to bring all these people together. And when we did bring them together, you know, I said, I want to find out what we all have in common. And it was at that meeting that Eric Raymond said, hey, you know, we came up with this new term a couple of weeks ago. Christine Peterson made it up called open source as opposed to free software. And it was this big debate at the meeting. Would we use free software or open source? And This
0: was a summit you would convene. Yes, yeah, so I convened a
1: right. summit of about 30 leaders of free software, uh, you know, projects.
0: So the term open source was born at that event, or, or rather shortly before it, but then you guys voted and basically knighted it.
1: It was knighted, and we agreed to use it. Part of the event was, you know, these guys showed up, and I said, we're having a press conference at the end of the day, so we have to have something to tell them. And we had invited in all the top media who I knew from my work sort of promoting the internet. Yeah, and uh, And so that's really when it just sort of you know clicked you know within a few weeks you know the the, that was i was uh, with forbes or fortune you had linus torvalds on the cover and a big spread inside about all these free software leaders and i still remember and this is a great example of the power of ideas and this is something that's fairly central to my book wtf what's Mm -hmm. the future and why it's up to us and some people say well who's us and and why is it up to us? What can we do? You know, aren't we helpless in the face of these vast technology platforms? Yeah. And the answer to me is that what we as humans believe shapes what this vast assemblage of things does. And in fact, that kind of we can go back to that whole discussion of, of AI as a collective being. Yeah. We're actually seeing that today. You know, right now, this is. Vast mind storms that are going through the the Internet, you know, where, where people and not just sort of cute memes. Right. But, you know, vast ideas that are, are you know, shaping the, the consciousness of, of, of millions of people shaping our politics. Uh, so the the power of an idea that's adopted by millions of people is enormous. Yeah. And getting those ideas right and getting them to spread is a huge part of of the way that, you know, we shape the future. You know, think back to the the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. You know, this set of people came to believe something different about the way that people could be organized.
0: And their internet was pamphleteering. And things like Common Sense by Thomas Paine got very widespread. I mean, not widespread like Google— but a very, very high double-digit percentage of American adults read common sense. And they had their, you know, their own way of spreading these things. And at the time, the speed was also very revolutionary.
1: That's right. And, and, and that really is, in some sense, the history of, of humankind. is the speed and thoroughness with which ideas spread. Yeah. And we've been building better and better mechanisms. And, and that is why you know, our, our society is so incredibly affected by new ideas. When I started telling that story about free software is not this rebel movement that's hostile to commercial activity, all of you, you know, all of you reporters from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Time and all the people who who were there, you're all using free software. You depend on it, you know, because the internet was built with free software. And and they were like, What? And I said, Yeah, you know, like when you have uh, NewYorkTimes.com, this guy here, Paul Vixie, at the end of the table, he's written and maintained that software for many years. It's just him. Right. And you guys, you depend on his free software to maintain the domain name system that gives you a name like NewYorkTimes.com. Oh, you send email. This guy, Eric Allman, he wrote that software that routes 75% of all the email on the internet. Oh, and, uh, you know, over here, if you have a website, it's probably Apache. Brian Bellendorf was one of the leaders of that team. You know, so I kind of spread that story and it was so amazing where it was I first met with incredulity. And I, mm. I did about two weeks worth of interviews and, mm. it, and it felt like you're pushing on something and it's starting to move. Mm. And then within two weeks, it was just what everybody believed.
0: Yeah. And,
1: yeah. yeah. And, 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 and it was probably the most visceral experience I've ever had of changing people's minds. Mm. And so I've been addicted to that ever since. And
0: naming is so important. You need a name that's going to travel far and wide and nest in people's minds and really convey exactly what the named thing is. And in this case, you guys clearly nailed it as a group.
1: And and, and, and it's interesting because if you think of all the the names that I'm associated with, like open source and web 2.0 and the maker movement, I didn't come up with any of them. Yeah, you know, I came up with this uh, deeper infrastructure of ideas, and then then this name just sort of walked in.
0: You convened the people, the exact right people, to the room, though, and that, it kind of reminds me of what Kim Palaisi did with Java. I mean, she's always very clear and very much at pains to say she did not name Java, Um, but she convened the people who were, in fact, nobody in that conference room when it was named remembers who put it up on the whiteboard, but she pulled the right folks together and led the conversation from which it emerged. And I think that's something very, very significant. And by the way, I I didn't know maker was another term that's associated with you. you You guys make Make magazine, so obviously I'm not shocked. Um, but that's a pretty impressive run. Web 2.0, maker, open source, uh, of you know great names to be associated with, and this brings us to this wonderful book, which actually comes out the very day that this is this episode is going to be posted. It feels to me like it's a cross between a memoir and a manifesto, plus maybe a crash course in what's new and truly, you know, shaping the tech scene right now. Is that a decent characterization?
1: Yes, I would say so. It's basically, it's a memoir of what I've learned from now close to 40 years in the technology industry, mostly about technology platforms, yeah. what makes them thrive, and how they work, particularly how the the latest platforms, how they have changed how they work internally. And then what lessons that has for us as an economy and a society. Mm -hmm. And the first lesson, which I I spend some time on, is this idea that uh, they're really marketplaces. They're connecting people. And a marketplace has buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. And what I've watched is the platforms begin with this explosion of new capability, connecting people, mm-hmm. uh, creating opportunity for both sides of a marketplace.
0: Now, are you talking about platforms and marketplaces in a very literal sense, like eBay and Airbnb, or are you talking about it in a in a broader frame?
1: Uh, you know, I think actually I am talking about it in the broadest possible frame eventually. But let's just start with, you know, I started with Microsoft, where they were basically the platform, the, the software platform for this first wave of the of the you know really the the democratization of computing so the 80s yeah, the, 90s the, yeah, the 80s 90s microsoft yeah. and it was this huge wave of opportunity for small software developers that were you know it, it was much smaller than the, the than the internet but there were hundreds if not thousands of small software companies and so and um, they all almost all died yeah. and they got they were consumed. And Microsoft, which was originally the enabler of this ecosystem, yeah. became the consumer of this ecosystem. As one after another, they said, "Well, we have to kill you." I mean, we had that experience directly. With we had launched actually the first PC-based web server as a follow-on mm-hmm. on to GNN, something called Website. And Microsoft was like, "This is so great, you yeah, know, so great. You know, we're going to make you famous." And then a few weeks later, uh, you know, a few months later, it was like, "Sorry, we're going to have to kill you," and because and, right. we need that market.
0: So what they're saying is we're going to build that into our operating system or we're going to come out with a rival application that will annihilate you because it's us and it's our OS. Instead of like, it's like the marketplace, instead of being eBay is a literal marketplace. The marketplace in this case was this huge base of people who are using Microsoft and the buyers were all the software users of the world. And the sellers were all the software developers. But unlike eBay, which doesn't say, Hey, we're now going to be the only seller of a, whatever, very popular category of thing on eBay, you know, beanie babies back in the early days, Microsoft was killing off those people who set up shop. On their platform and said you know we're saying like hey there's 30 of us making word processors and they're all different and we all want to win and microsoft basically said here comes word so So that's right they devoured they devoured
1: the ecosystem and of course all the developers went somewhere else and they went to a place where they didn't think they could make any money Mm. and that's kind of another thread through my career people innovation doesn't actually start with entrepreneurs it starts with people having fun. Yes. You know, this idea that, you know, innovation begins with entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. That's not been my experience. Mm-hmm. Innovation begins with people who actually don't think there's any opportunity to make money. They just kind of do a the hell of it.
0: Oh, God, I got onto the Internet in 1994, much later than you. But everybody, even then, was still just in it for the joy of it. And I agree.
1: You know, so all those passionate people, they went over to the Internet. The Internet
0: became this huge
1: opportunity. And then the venture capitalists came in later. I've watched that repeat as Google is sort of consuming more and more of their ecosystem Mm. as, you know, Twitter and Facebook and whatever. They, They kind of compete with the people that they should be enabling, and Twitter did it very. They devoured yeah. some of the people, and, and wait and way too, too yeah. early. Yeah, you know, to even they didn't even wait till it was mature enough that they could really profit from it. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, of, bad stories there, and of course, I then really look at that and I say, well, that's actually what's happening in our economy, mm. and that's part of the problem, and that that's really the, uh, you know, uh, kind of a central nub of the book. Uh, which is, OK, if we learn that platforms have to be good for all the participants or the participants go somewhere else. Right. Then, uh, you know, what are we going to do about that? Mm-hmm. And what is that? You know, are we doing that in our broader economy? And of course we are. Yeah. So the the narrative really goes. I spent a lot of time on So sort of on. Uber and Lyft, and then on Airbnb, sort of explaining the dynamics of marketplaces, how they're increasingly coming, you know, digital marketplaces are increasingly coming into the real world. Mm-hmm. Again, talk about the rise of Amazon's thinking of itself as a platform and how Amazon organized itself internally. And then really, I spend uh, this, there's this a chapter about Google and how they manage their algorithms. Yeah. And it's really about this notion. Uh, and again, it's one of these. Uh, ways a, a map a remapping of the way we think about things yeah. I, I start my chapter on on google by saying if you think about with a 20th century mindset uh, you think that software engineers at google or facebook or amazon are kind of like workers in a factory except they're making software instead of making you know widgets yeah so but actually the workers at these companies are software programs and these are their managers mm. You know, and every day they're taking feedback from their, you know, from from their their customers about how their workers are doing and, and and then teaching their workers how to do a better job. Yeah. And but also, though, we now have this interesting situation at a company like Uber where the programs themselves are the managers of a lower level of worker. Right. Uh, and there's so I really got the dri- there's being the drivers, the drivers. Yeah. 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 So I'm kind of looking at all this. But there's a lot of there's a lot of thinking about how how does a company like Uber or Lyft. Uh, you know, engage with workers and how is technology used uh, in this incredible new compound organism, you know, where, you know, you can really see with Uber and Lyft how, you know, this is not just about digital stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, you now have this, uh, you know, one of these compound beings, which is doing stuff in the real world. And of course, it's true of Amazon, just less obviously, the package just shows up at your door and the the human doesn't really seem to... um, Mm -hmm. You know, be
0: there. One of the refreshing things is this doesn't take you to a place of grim pessimism, of which there's been plenty lately. There was a quote. Um, it's actually not from the book. I think it's from a Medium post that you put up uh, to describe the book, which really struck me. And you said, I've had my fill of technological determinism. Technology is the solution to human problems. And we won't run out of work until we run out of problems. And this won't run out of work thing, it was refreshing to see that to me, because there's been a lot of doom saying about how the next wave of technology, the new machine age that we're entering, is going to obviate the need for an enormous amount of human work. That seems to be actually quite contrary to your own thinking. There's one idea you develop um, that I quite liked in the book, you called the augmented worker. Would you care to go into that a little bit? Because I think there's a lot to hope for in that.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, if you think about the fundamental design pattern of technology, mm. It is that it allows us humans to do things that were previously impossible, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a, uh, uh, you know, a, a Iron Age warrior with a steel, uh, an iron sword uh, cutting through the bronze sword of his opponent. You know, he was augmented by that technology, made more powerful. Certainly. Uh, you know, you think about the Industrial Revolution, how much power we get. We could go faster. We could dig tunnels, uh, you know, through mountains. Uh, you know, and eventually we learned to fly through the air and all these amazing
0: superpowers. And made the worker more valuable because the worker could do more stuff. We did more.
1: You know, it's sort of like, you know, we didn't say, oh, you know, guess what? You know, we now only need two percent of the population to produce all the food uh, the United States needs. Yeah. You guys get your gruel. Yeah. We we started creating all kinds of new elaborations Mm. on food. Yep. And, and you really see this in, in, in today's world as well. And this really goes back. This is a really wonderful idea. Whenever one thing becomes a commodity, yep. humans make something else valuable.
0: And something often adjacent to it.
1: Yeah, it, it yeah. can be adjacent. I mean, I saw that with that was what led me from open source software to big data, for example, yeah. that, that, you know, when a software was being commoditized. Yeah, this big, big data would become valuable.
0: One example you gave in a prior conversation of ours, which I found really evocative, was, okay, we commoditized textiles and cloth some time ago, but now we have fashion as a result of that. If you look at the amount of money that's spent on raw textiles, you know, bolts of cloth versus the amount of money that's spent on fashion, on finished clothing, it's probably 10x in terms of industry size. And certainly the agricultural revolution, to go way back, commoditized the calorie, which almost all working humans prior to that spent most of their working lives creating enough calories for themselves and their families, now we've made cuisine. Though agriculture is, of course, a huge, huge industry, the amount of money that's spent on raw wheat, say, probably pales in comparison to the amount of money that's spent on Ritz crackers, restaurant meals, and all the other things that are made from wheat. Now, to get back to this concept of the augmented worker, just as augmented farmers made calories so cheap we were able to invent cuisine, your book makes some equally provocative points about digitally augmented workers.
1: Just as we augmented our physicality, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at an application like Uber and Lyft, you realize that their workers are cognitively augmented. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's a really important thing to understand here. When you look at these applications, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people think, well, it's just an app, right? right? But no, it's an app, which is an interface to a system, uh, which with with people, machines, algorithms, uh, it's a marketplace of drivers and passengers. The app does this matching in real time. And here's the thing that's really interesting. Uh, The reason why Lyft and Uber can have enough drivers that you can get picked up in three minutes anywhere in the city most times is because, those workers are augmented by a mapping application like Google Maps yeah. and Ways, and it tells them. Not only is the the app, the Lyft or Uber app, that matches them up in real time with the passenger,
0: but the GPS, but, that, tells but
1: the GPS that tells them where to go. This is an example of a cognitive augmentation that makes those workers able to do something they couldn't do before. Yeah. Now imagine, you know, like how might we rethink healthcare? In a world where you could summon a community health worker who was cognitively augmented, you know, who has the ability to uh, check check uh, with all kinds of new sensors, yeah. your health is able to work with you, is able to summon an AI to look at that. You know, I have this funky little thing on the side of my head that I'm kind of going, what is that? It's under my hair. I have some little bump. I want to go to the doctor to get it looked at. Yeah. You know, somebody could kind of point a camera at it, have an AI look at it. Go, oh yeah, such, such and such. I'll take it off right now. Or no, no, you should really go in and get it. You know, you know, there's all kinds of crazy ways we could totally rethink the workflows of healthcare and, and what kind of level of training is required to deliver healthcare.
0: And uh, to get back to the sort of optimistic notion of the augmented worker, because I think this is actually a very evocative notion. Let's imagine this mobile healthcare worker is maybe a registered nurse who's able to do things that you know formerly a dermatologist needed to do. But because of the augmentations and the software and the mobile apps and so forth, this nurse uh, can do a lot of that initial diagnostic work of a dermatologist. So let's say the RN is, I don't know, three times more capable as a mobile health worker than previously. We're not going to say, oh, thank God, let's lay off two thirds of them we're going to say, let's hire more of them because this is a more valuable person. And you use a couple of great examples in your book. One is something that I personally remember when automatic teller machines first came out. I remember thinking all these poor folks at the bank are gone because all we do is come in and withdraw money from them. But then you point out in the book that with the rise of the ATM, there are actually more tellers than there used to be because they're doing a higher level stuff. And again, they're more valuable, which is pretty powerful that's right
1: yeah that's the work of an economist named james besson right uh who fascinating uh you know research he's done a lot of interesting work about technology transformations and uh this is 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 a lesson when you do more yeah, when you do more for the customer when you actually increase productivity you do hire more people
0: so our technical listeners here, we conclude the second installment of my interview with Tim O'Reilly, and of course, part three is coming tomorrow. As mentioned, if you can't wait to hear the rest of the interview, you can just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after on into your favorite podcast player and scroll through the episodes to find this one, which originally ran on October 10th of last year. There, you'll also find lots of episodes about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy, and government hacking, quantum computing, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me tomorrow here on ours.